Chapter 3 of The Gospel of Life, Evangelium Vitae, Encyclical Letter of Pope John Paul II. You shall not kill God's holy law. If you would enter life, keep the commandments, gospel and commandment. And behold, one came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus replied, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The teacher is speaking about eternal life, that is, a sharing in the life of God himself. This life is attained through the observance of the Lord's commandments, including the commandment, You shall not kill. This is the first precept from the Decalogue, which Jesus quotes to the young man who asks him what commandments he should observe. Jesus said, You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. God's commandment is never detached from his love. It is always a gift meant for man's growth and joy. As such, it represents an essential and indispensable aspect of the gospel, actually becoming gospel itself, joyful good news. The gospel of life is both a great gift of God and an exacting task for humanity. It gives rise to amazement and gratitude in the person graced with freedom, and it asks to be welcomed, preserved, and esteemed, with a deep sense of responsibility. In giving life to man, God demands that he love, respect, and promote life. The gift thus becomes a commandment, and the commandment is itself a gift. Man, as the living image of God, is willed by his Creator to be ruler and Lord. St. Gregory of Nyssa writes that, quote, God made man capable of carrying out his role as king of the earth. Man was created in the image of the one who governs the universe. Everything demonstrates that from the beginning, man's nature was marked by royalty. Man is a king, created to exercise dominion over the world. He was given a likeness to the king of the universe. He is the living image who participates by his dignity, in the perfection of the divine archetype. Unquote. Called to be faithful and multiply, to subdue the earth, and to exercise dominion over other lesser creatures, man is ruler and lord not only over things, but especially over himself, and in a certain sense over the life which he has received and which he is able to transmit through procreation carried out with love and respect for God's plan. Man's lordship, however, is not absolute, but ministerial. It is a real reflection of the unique and infinite lordship of God. Hence, man must exercise it with wisdom and love, sharing in the boundless wisdom and love of God. And this comes about through obedience to God's holy law, a free and joyful obedience, born of and fostered by an awareness that the precepts of the Lord are a gift of grace entrusted to man always and solely for his good, for the preservation of his personal dignity and the pursuit of his happiness.
with regard to things, but even more with regard to life. Man is not the absolute master and final judge, but rather, and this is where his incomparable greatness lies, he is the minister of God's plan. Life is entrusted to man as a treasure, which must not be squandered as a talent, which must be used well. Man must render an account of it to his master. From man in regard to his fellow man, I will demand an accounting for human life. Human life is sacred and inviolable. Human life is sacred because from its beginning it involves the creative action of God, and it remains forever in a special relationship with the Creator, who is its sole end. God alone is the Lord of life from its beginning until, the, until its end. No one can, in any circumstance, claim for himself the right to destroy directly an innocent human being. With these words, the instruction Donum Vitae sets forth the central content of God's revelation on the sacredness and inviolability of human life. Sacred scripture, in fact, presents the precept, you shall not kill, as a divine commandment. As I have already emphasized, this commandment is found in the Decalogue at the heart of the covenant which the Lord makes with his chosen people. But it was already contained in the original covenant between God and humanity after the purifying punishment of the flood caused by the spread of sin and violence. God proclaims that he is absolute Lord of the life of man, who is formed in his image and likeness. Human life is thus given a sacred and inviolable character, which reflects the inviolability of the Creator himself. Precisely for this reason, God will severely judge every violation of the commandment, you shall not kill, the commandment which is at the basis of all life together in society. He is the Goel, the defender of the innocent. God thus shows that he does not delight in the death of the living. Only Satan can delight therein. For through his envy, death entered the world. He who is a murderer from the beginning is also a liar and the father of lies. By deceiving man, he leads him to projects of sin and death, making them appear as goals and fruits of life. As explicitly formulated, the precept, you shall not kill, is strongly negative. It indicates the extreme limit, which can never be exceeded. Implicitly, however, it encourages a positive attitude of respect for life. It leads to the promotion of life and to progress along the way of a love which gives, receives, and serves. The people of the covenant, although slowly and with some contradictions, progressively matured in this way of thinking, and thus prepared for the great proclamation of Jesus, that the commandment to love one's neighbor is like the commandment to love God. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. St. Paul emphasizes that the commandment you shall not kill and any other commandment are summed up in this phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Taken up and brought to fulfillment in the new law, the commandment, you shall not kill, stands as an indispensable condition for being able to enter life. In this same perspective, the words of the Apostle John have a categorical ring. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him.
From the beginning, the living tradition of the Church, as shown by the Didache, the most ancient non-biblical Christian writing, categorically repeated the commandment, You shall not kill. There are two ways, a way of life and a way of death. There is a great difference between them. In accordance with the precept of the teaching, You shall not kill, You shall not put a child to death by abortion, nor kill it once it is born. The way of death is this. They show no compassion for the poor. They do not suffer with the suffering. They do not acknowledge their creator. They kill their children and by abortion cause God's creatures to perish. They drive away the needy, oppress the suffering. They are advocates of the rich and unjust judges of the poor. They are filled with every sin. May you be able to stay ever apart, O children, from all these sins. As time passed, the Church's tradition has always consistently taught the absolute and unchanging value of the commandment, You shall not kill. It is a known fact that in the first centuries, murder was put among the three most serious sins, along with apostasy and adultery, and required a particularly heavy and lengthy public penance before the repentant murderer could be granted forgiveness and readmission to the ecclesial community. This should not cause surprise. To kill a human being in whom the image of God is present is a particularly serious sin. Only God is the master of life. Yet from the beginning, faced with the many and often tragic cases which occur in the life of individuals and society, Christian reflection has sought a fuller and deeper understanding of what God's commandment prohibits and prescribes. There are, in fact, situations in which values proposed by God's law seem to involve a genuine paradox. This happens, for example, in the case of legitimate defense, in which the right to protect one's own life and the duty not to harm someone else's life are difficult to reconcile in practice. Certainly, the intrinsic value of life and the duty to love oneself no less than others are the basis of a true right to self-defense. The demanding commandment of love of neighbor, set forth in the Old Testament and confirmed by Jesus, itself presupposes love of oneself as the basis of comparison. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Consequently, no one can renounce the right to self-defense out of lack of love for life or for self. This can only be done in virtue of a heroic love, which deepens and transfigures the love of self into a radical self-offering, according to the spirit of the gospel beatitudes. The sublime example of this self-offering is the Lord Jesus himself. Moreover, legitimate defense can be not only a right, but a grave duty for someone responsible for another's life, the common good of the family or of the state. Unfortunately, it happens that the need to render the aggressor incapable of causing harm sometimes involves taking his life. In this case, the fatal outcome is attributable to the aggressor, whose action brought it about, even though he may not be morally responsible because of a lack of the use of reason. This is the context in which to place the problem of the death penalty. On this matter, there is a growing tendency, both in the church and in civil society, to demand that it be applied in a very limited way, or even that it be abolished completely. The problem must be viewed in the context of a system of penal justice 
ever more in line with human dignity, and thus, in the end, with God's plan for man and society, the primary purpose of the punishment which society inflicts is to redress the disorder caused by the offense. Public authority must redress the violation of personal and social rights by imposing on the offender an adequate punishment for the crime as a condition for the offender to regain the exercise of his or her freedom. In this way, authority also fulfills the purpose of defending public order and ensuring people's safety, while at the same time offering the offender an incentive and help to change his or her behavior and be rehabilitated. It is clear that, for these purposes to be achieved, the nature and extent of the punishment must be carefully evaluated and decided upon, and ought not to go to the extreme of executing the offender in except in cases of absolute necessity. In other words, when it would not be possible otherwise to defend society. Today, however, as a result of steady improvements in the organization of the penal system, such cases are very rare, if not practically non-existent. In any event, the principle set forth in the new Catechism of the Catholic Church remains valid. If bloodless means are sufficient to defend human lives against an aggressor and to protect public order and the safety of persons, public authority must limit itself to such means, because they better correspond to the concrete conditions of the common good and are more in conformity to the dignity of the human person. If such great care must be taken to respect every life, even that of criminals and unjust aggressors. The commandment, you shall not kill, has absolute value when it refers to the innocent person, and all the more so in the case of weak and defenseless human beings, who find their ultimate defense against the arrogance and caprice of others only in the absolute binding force of God's commandment. In effect, the absolute inviolability of innocent human life is a moral truth clearly taught by sacred scripture, constantly upheld in the church's tradition, and consistently proposed by her magisterium. This consistent teaching is the evident result of that supernatural sense of the faith, which, inspired and sustained by the Holy Spirit, safeguards the people of God from error, when it shows universal agreement in matters of faith and morals. Faced with the progressive weakening in individual consciences and in society, of the sense of the absolute and grave moral illicitness of the direct taking of all innocent human life, especially at its beginning and at its end, the Church's magisterium has spoken out with increasing frequency in defense of the sacredness and inviolability of human life. The papal magisterium, particularly insistent in this regard, has always been seconded by that of the bishops, with numerous and comprehensive doctrinal and pastoral documents, issued either by Episcopal conferences or by individual bishops. The Second Vatican Council also addressed the matter forcefully in a brief but incisive passage. Therefore, by the authority which Christ conferred upon Peter and his successors, and in communion with the bishops of the Catholic Church, I confirm that the direct and voluntary killing of an innocent human being is always gravely immoral. This doctrine based upon that unwritten law which man, in the light of reason, finds in his own heart, is reaffirmed by sacred scripture, transmitted by the tradition of the church, and taught by the ordinary and universal magisterium. The deliberate decision to deprive an innocent human being of his life is always 
morally evil and can never be licit, either as an end in itself or as a means to a good end. It is, in fact, a grave act of disobedience to the moral law and indeed to God himself, the author and guarantor of that law. It contradicts the fundamental virtues of, vir- of justice and charity. Nothing and no one can in, can in any way permit the killing of an innocent human being, whether a fetus or an embryo, an infant or an adult, an old person or one suffering from an incurable disease or a person who is dying. Furthermore, no one is permitted to ask for this act of killing, either for himself or herself or for another person entrusted to his or her care. Nor can he or she consent to it, either explicitly or implicitly. Nor can any authority legitimately recommend or permit such an action. As far as the right to life is concerned, every innocent human being is absolutely equal to all others. This equality is the basis of all authentic social relationships, which, to be truly such, can only be founded on truth and justice, recognizing and protecting every man and woman as a person and not as an object to be used. Before the moral norm, which prohibits the direct taking of the life of an innocent human being, there are no privileges or exceptions for anyone. It makes no difference whether one is the master of the world or the poorest of the poor on the face of the earth. Before the demands of morality, we are all absolutely equal. Next time, part two of chapter three.